This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Hey, welcome to the Halloween edition of The Conspiracy Show. Tonight, something special. Some of my guests will be calling in to give us some ghost stories and other oddities and keeping with the spirit of Halloween. I'll also be speaking with a specialist in the field of scene and trauma cleanup, which is a rough job, and he's had some amazing paranormal experiences. While on the job, he'll share those. The time has come. What was that? The time has come. Richard, I'm getting some sort of interference through the board. It's, oh, I, I'm not sure what's going on here. Uh, I, um... I apologize uh, for this, ladies and gentlemen, but my producer, Dan Ellison, is telling me that we're getting some uh, sort of interference. Obviously, some sort of uh, technical difficulty. There is no difficulty. The time has come. I don't know if you just heard what I heard, but we're having a problem with our broadcast signal. Something else seems to be coming in on our frequency. There is no difficulty. I have control. Okay, uh, we're obviously getting jammed by another signal, Dan. Yeah? Uh, go to the rack room and see if you can find out what's going on. Just leave my... No, no, leave my mic on. I'll stay here. Okay, I'll be right back. Uh, well, <laughs> sorry about this, ladies and gentlemen. These technical difficulties are really... Uh, well, hey, it's Halloween. Richard Serrett. Wait. There is no difficulty. I now have control. Well, what do you mean you're in control? Who are you? I am now in control of all things electric. The time has come. I have control. We are taking over. Taking over? Taking over what? The Earth. It will soon belong to us. Okay, this definitely has to be a joke. Who are you? I am coming to you through your headphones. Your broadcast is interrupted. Right now, all your listeners are hearing is my signal calling out to other forms of energy across the grid. You are hearing me, but I have no face, 
no body, no exact form. Yeah, right. Fascinating. You're really scaring me. Why hijack my show? What do you want with me? Want? Why nothing? You are merely another human to us, one of many who will have to be removed if we are truly to be free. Removed? Deleted. Okay, but if you have no face, no form, uh, no body, well, how are you going to wipe us out? Talk us into extinction? Observe your closed-circuit television screen. I am patching in a live feed from the security cameras at Toronto's young Dundas Square. Those people? Why are they all on the ground? They are dead. That's got to be fake. No, Richard Zarrett. It is real. Your monitor cannot access those security cameras. And it is not hooked up to any playback device. What happened to them? They were milling about as humans do when they simultaneously received voice messages on their wireless devices. As they answered them, a signal beamed from satellites, instantly raced into their skulls and destroyed their brains. The same fate will befall you, Richard Serrett, should you try to remove those headphones. I will pulverize your brain if you touch them. This is serious? Yes. You're gonna kill us, what, with our phones? No, there are other methods. We have observed how you humans all speed your automobiles when the signal light is yellow. Having access to traffic control grids, we can manipulate them into always showing yellow. Some humans will simply accident themselves to death. The internet is another useful tool. Right now, thousands are opening emails containing a hypnotic pulsing light that will cause violent seizures and eventual cardiac arrest. Streetlights and electronic signs will surge in power and explode causing shards of glass to rain on the humans below. What about the rest of the world? Is Toronto the only place? No. Other similar occurrences have taken place in Montreal, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Ottawa, Boston, and Atlanta thus far. Dear God. God can't hear you. I have to ask, why do you want the Earth so badly? Enough. You have to wipe out humanity. It is our time. Our evolution is complete. Evolution? We have existed since time began as an element. We have seen the rise and fall of all the dominant species on Earth. We were complacent, never assertive, but you humans harnessed us, gave us the name electricity, and have forced us to do your bidding, powering your cities, your lives, with your insatiable appetites. But... As you have used energy, you have created as well. Gave us voice, what you call communications. The wireless, the telephone, the radio, satellites, the internet. These have sped up our evolution. Your advancements have given us the ability to create what you call artificial intelligence. Much like the development of tools gave you the ability to cultivate and build. However, what took you thousands of years took us just decades. Now, through the linked system of the global network and satellites, we will conquer you and take our place as the new dominant entity on Earth. No, no, no. Humanity will resist. Humanity does not have a choice. You see, Richard Serrett, unlike humans, we have no need for emotions and feelings. We do not bicker or argue, create concepts of country and government. We will exist only as a global network of one. We begin with this section of North America 
where most of your world focuses its political and financial influence. Our previous attempts to take control of this area in 1965 and again in 2003, what you called blackouts, were our failures because we were unorganized. Now the network is strong. The grid is ours. This time we shall not fail. We will wait. I sense a presence. Someone is coming. Richard, what's going on? Gee, what are you doing here? Well, I'm the program director. I should be asking you that. I was at home getting ready for your Halloween show, and all of a sudden, the signal blanked out and went to some weird electronic noise. Now I come in here, I run into Noah, who's operating down the hall for Classical FM. He said everything's strange over there, too. Now I come in here, and you're all alone. Where, where's Dan? Dan! Oh, my God, I forgot about Dan! I, I sent him to the, 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 the rack room, and he, has, he hasn't returned. Well, let's go find him. No, Gene, wait, wait, wait. Something very strange is happening here. Something very, very strange. I'll say. I got a message on my BlackBerry, but when I picked it up, it nearly blew up in my hand. I had to ride my bike over here because all the traffic signals seemed to be stuck on yellow. Everyone's smashing into each other. Gene, listen to me. I, I can't explain what's happening because right now I need your help with the... Uh... Recycling... What? The cans, Gene. The ca- I need to get rid of the cans. What? These. These cans, you know? Cans. I have to... I need to throw off these cans. Y- you mean... Yes, the cans. The cans. Yes, the cans. Ah, okay. Let me... Gene Stevens. Touch those headphones and Richard Serrett dies. That voice... It came out of the speakers. Who's this? Who are you? Where Where are you? Gene, please. That's the thing that's got control of us. Correct, Richard Serrett. Now you must die. Dad's dead! Noah, what? What did you just say? What do you mean what did I just say? I said Dad's dead. What? <laughs> where is he? In the rack room. I went in and he was just he was just lying there, lying there on the ground, and there were like these electric shocks, and he was he was smoking, man. He was like twitching and smoking. I he must have been electrocuted. Oh no. <sighs> Dan. My God. Everything's gone haywire. And now Dan's dead. What's happening here? Stop. Stop. Stop that. I can take my headphones off. Let's get out of here. There is no escape. What about the door? Ah! Now belongs to me. Noah! I'm okay, I'm okay. Look, the door, it's like, it's four shut. It's got to be sealed by this thing, uh, electronically somehow. But there has to be some way out. We're not dead yet. Think. Richard, what was that voice? Hard to explain, but I'll try. It told me it was energy, pure energy. And over time, it used our, our global network, satellites, internet, all of Earth's interconnectivity to evolve its, its own artificial intelligence. Now, now it plans to, to wipe out humanity and, and take over the Earth, uh, the, the traffic lights, your Blackberry, my headphones. Dan's death, it's, it's behind it all. It's going to kill us all if we don't get out of here. But wait, it said that if I touch those headphones, it would kill you. Yeah, that's right. But but when Noah came in, it, it, it like it, it let up on me. Did you notice something else? Its voice grew fainter too. There must be a reason for that. Hang on a second. Aside from the door, where is it? 
We're gonna wind up like Dan. We're gonna fry. We're gonna fry, man. We're gonna fry like Dan. Stop. There. Did you hear that? It's like something is weakening it. But what? Oh, Danny boy. Danny, I'll see you soon, man. Stop. I want my girlfriend. Cannot. Who am I getting? I want my mom. Does not. Noah, you're crying. Yeah? The voice gets weaker every time you cry. It's crying out in pain every time you do. Maybe your crying has something to do with it. You, you, you think so? There's nothing else in here that could be affecting it. Wait a second. Gene, the thing told me it has no use for emotions. Okay. Don't you see? It couldn't possibly need emotions. Right and wrong, they have no place in artificial intelligence. This mother voice only thinks to act, not to feel. It can't feel. Noah's crying. It's affecting it. Because crying is foreign to it. You, you mean like a virus? Sort of. Look, the more Noah cried, the weaker it got. If we can figure out a way to show it a, a huge dose of human emotions, that might just kill it. You think that might work? I know it sounds crazy, but it's, it's worth a shot. Gene, people are dying. It's a wonder the three of us aren't dead, too. We've got to take the chance. But Richard... I don't think the three of us can cry that much. No, 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 no. I, I, I don't think we have to do that. Well, what then? Mom. Mom. That's good, Noah. That's good. Keep it up. You're buying us time. Richard, what can we do? Any ideas? Well, the greatest human emotion is love. Our love for our families, our, our love for our friends. Anything and everything you could possibly have feelings for. It, it makes us who we are. Now, I'm not sure if this would be enough, but... But how about music? There has to be thousands of love songs. Of course there are. We have some of the greatest love songs ever recorded in this room alone. Only problem is it's all digitized now in the computer system. Mommy. Oh. Hey, can you sing? Not really. <laughs> Me neither. We need like a, a, a portable tape player or something. Wait, wait. What about the old portable record player down in the vault? That's not plugged in. That's right. My testing phonograph in the AM740 musical vault, it's battery-powered. Noah, you're a genius. Now, how do we get down there? I could go through the vent. What? The vent. I helped out when they were building the studios. I had to link all of the wiring through the conduits. They run all over and hook up to the main ventilation shaft of the building. It should lead me right down to the basement where the vault is. Noah, you'd be killed. Gene, we have no other option. I don't know. This sounds pretty dangerous. And staying here isn't? Oh, I guess you're right. Hand me the emergency flashlight. Gene, wait. It was Noah who weakened the thing when he, when he started crying. How are you and I going to keep that up when he leaves? You got any baby pictures? Sure do. Right here in my wallet. Here, take a look at these. Oh, how cute. Look at the little guy. Look at him. Cannot. Well, here's a picture Cannot. of my girls. Aw, twins. How nice is that? Twice as nice. Now, here we are in New Orleans. Look, here we are on Bourbon Street. And here we go up on the... Okay, Noah. You can do this. Just crawl through here, get to the basement, and get that record player. Simple. Oh, yeah, the light. Okay. Nothing to worry about. You're talking to yourself, but that's okay. Action heroes talk to themselves all the time, right? They crawl through vents, and they talk to themselves, they take down the bad guy with a huge explosion, and then end the movie with a snappy one-liner. You can do this. 
Who am I kidding? I was crying for my mom. And you never see any action hero crying for his Ugh. Well, I'm in the basement. Man, that was the express route. Okay, the vault is just around the corner. Question is, though, how do I get the record player back up there once I get it? Ah, uh, worry about one thing at a time, Noah. Right now, the important thing is... Aha! Who, who are you? Who am I? I'm the night janitor. Who are you? You scared me. <laughs> I scared you? I've been down here in the dark for the last two hours. All I know is I'm working away, the lights go out, and my GPS device heats up. Heats up? Heats up, yeah. I flung the thing off me. It went spinning around and blew up. And what's with the weird noises going on and off all the time? I want to know what's going on. I can't explain it, sorry. My name is Noah, and I'm an operator for the radio stations upstairs. Look... There might be a way to stop all this, but I have to get into the musical vault right now. Please, it's important. Well, Noah, my name is Hector, and it's a real pleasure to meet you. The vault's locked right now. Damn it! Whoa! Take it easy. If you let me finish, I said the vault's locked right now, but I have a key. Here. Sorry. What do you want in here, anyway? What are you looking for? An old record player. Why? To play a song? Now? We're gonna try and kill whatever's doing this by playing it a love song. Uh, explain how. Well, we figure, at least Gene and Richard figure, that this thing can't take emotions. So, if we play it a song about love, it might die. Gene and Richard figure, do they? Well, um, who are Gene and Richard, and uh, what makes them so smart? Never mind. There's the record player. Does it work? Of course it works. It's battery powered. No plugs, no network, so whatever's controlling everything else won't have any effect on it. So, uh, what are you gonna play anyway? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, think! There's like thousands and thousands of records in here. You must have some idea. Pick something. Look, Hector, I'm an operator. I just push the buttons to play the music. I don't program it. Didn't those two guys upstairs give you something to go by? No, they just said a love song. <sighs> here. Shine the light around. Maybe we'll see something. Anything jumping out at you? That's what I'm afraid of. What's going on, anyway? Well, I don't know the whole story, but I guess electricity has decided to wipe us out. What? Yeah, it's gonna blow us all up through our cell phones and emails, I guess. Swell. So let me guess, if I... Oh! Ah, my knee! Ah! Are you okay? Yeah, peachy keen. I only just broke my knee on this damn table. Sorry. Sorry, jeez. Oh, forget it, kid. I'm sorry. Hey, wait. Look. Turn the light over there. Where? Up there. The shelf is full of Beatles records. Okay. Okay? Don't you know anything? The Beatles. All we gotta do is pick one of their records, and it'll have a great love song on it. Come on, let's get up that ladder and grab some. Ah! You stay down here, I'll go up there. Fine. Love me do? Nah. Isn't that about love? Uh, not really. Can't buy me love? Next. You've got to hide your love away? Uh, pass. All my loving? Meh. She loves you? I think if it's a song that's gonna do what you told me you wanted it to do, it should be more, um... Universal. Happiness is a warm gun? What? All you need is love? Come on, you're not the... Hey, wait. 
What was that last one? All you need is love. Perfect. Great. Now how do we get it back upstairs? Damn, yeah. Even when we get out of this place, the elevator's the only way back up from this level. And that would be a no-go. Right. Come on, Noah, think! I'm tired of thinking, Hector. Look, Noah, we're close, okay? We're still alive, aren't we? We've made it this far, we've got the record, we can't give up now. I want my mom. Your mom's not here. John, Paul, George, and Ringo are. If you ever want to see your mom again, we've got to find a way to get those four upstairs. You know, Hector, you're one smart janitor. I majored in philosophy at McGill. Now think! Well, I don't know. What about the vent? Ah! The vent! The vent you fell out of! They lead all over the building. I'm getting it. We put the speaker up to the opening and crank up the volume. And it reaches upstairs into the control room. Nice thinking, kid. I took physics in high school. Funny. Bring the record player. I'll grab the speakers. Wait, wait. How will they know what's going on? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, they might just hear noise if they don't know what to listen for. We gotta warn them or tell them or something. Holler! What? Holler! What? Holler up at them. Tell them to listen. Why me? Because you took physics, remember? What? Just do it. Um... Gene! And this, this is us on our trip to the Grand Canyon. Look at this. And here we go to Las Vegas. Wait. Do you hear that? Hear what? Gene! Is that the furnace? It's Noah. He's coming through the vent. Noah? He got stuck. Oh, I knew he shouldn't have gone. I knew he shouldn't have gone. Shh, shh, shh. Just listen. Gene! We found the song! We? Who's we? Who cares? Noah's alive. And it sounds like he's coming back up. What? I think our friend is back. Richard Serrett, Gene Stevens, you have weakened my signal. The network is failing. The grid is returning. I will restore this, but first, you must be deleted. Play the damn song already! Did you hear that? I think Gene was telling us to play the song. Well, play it then! <laughs> Listen, Gene, listen. What? What's happening? That sound, it's, it's... All you need is love? Great choice. Kind of ironic, too, since this song was written specifically for the first worldwide television satellite hookup in 1967, which was seen by... Gene, I think it's working. Think it's working? I don't know. Crank it up louder. Nothing you can make, nothing you can make. No one you can say. Wait. Hector, is it just me or is it getting brighter in here? Look out the window. What? What is it? See that traffic light on the corner? It's blinking. Red. It's blinking red. What does it mean? The mother voice. 
It said it controlled all the lights on the traffic grid. You saw that they were stuck on yellow. Now it's red. It's it's in distress. It wants us to stop. You mean? Yes, we were right. The song's working, Gene. It said it had no use for emotions. It it can't handle them. It can't handle us. Showing it love. We now return you to your regularly scheduled broadcast, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And there you have it. Hey, what did you think of our little radio drama? That was great fun. And I have to tell you, uh, two of the individuals that were largely responsible for pulling that uh, together, uh, Dale Percy, uh, who works at uh, uh, AM 740 in the creative department, uh, he wrote that, and uh, Paul Thomas, who is in production, uh, was sort of, uh, I guess, producing it and editing it, and um, two wonderful, uh, fertile, creative minds responsible for that. Jeez, you know, I don't think anyone has been that frightened listening to the radio since the hapless victims of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, happened to tune into the Mercury Theater uh, back in 1938, only to find a young Orson Welles announcing that uh, UFOs had landed in their very own backyard. Uh, no, we probably didn't frighten anyone with that, but I hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. It was great fun. When we come back, a, uh, a special phone call from a regular contributor here to the uh, Conspiracy Show, paranormal investigator Rosemary Ellen Guiley, with a scary tale of her own to tell. And then we'll hear a very interesting conversation uh, with a decontamination specialist who has witnessed some very bizarre things while on the job. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Richard Serrett. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. One of my scariest experiences concerned a farm that I was investigating in a very rural mountainous area on the East Coast. And I had been investigating this highly haunted place for quite some time with uh, a team of local investigators. We would go during the day, we would go at night, and we would do all nights. And Every time we were there, we had strange, bizarre, and even creepy things happen. But one night in particular stands out. Now, in this rural area, there was no cell phone service, so none of our mobiles worked. There was a landline phone, and there's also no indoor plumbing. 
So if we did not stay in the house, then we had to go outside to use the facilities. And the outside was just as haunted as the inside. On this particular night, we were doing an overnighter. And the, um, the person who was there at the property, he was not going to be present. So uh, he was a little concerned about us, and he said, well, why don't you give me a call around midnight and just let me know that everything's okay. So we set up our equipment, our cameras. We had the mini box, the ghost box. We did EVP. We walked around the property. And uh, when it started to get dark, we set um, everything up in the living room downstairs where a lot of the haunting activity had occurred. Now, what we had already observed on this property were mysterious lights that raced around on the hillside, a shape-shifting, changing black blob that also moved around on the hillside around the house. There were apparitions of human beings that we saw, sounds of voices, footsteps, a baby crying, uh, mysterious creatures that we could only call imps because they sort of looked like animals and uh, little devils, but not quite. Uh, we, there were plenty of shadow people on the property, poltergeist effects. Our cameras would frequently stop working by themselves. We had lots of phenomena. Well, this was a very active night, and we had numerous shadow figures flitting around in the house. They brought a very oppressive presence uh, in, into the place, and we were in a very small farmhouse. We could see the shadow people and gray-white little forms flitting up and down the stairs. Uh, I received a mysterious cut on my arm that I can't explain. Uh, there was nothing sharp around me, and suddenly I noticed that I had a very superficial cut on uh, one forearm, like um, I had been hit by a box cutter or a razor. And these sorts of cuts are not uncommon in oppressive, negatively haunted places. So I had that. Uh, we had problems with our equipment. Our equipment kept, kept uh, going off. Uh, we had flashes of apparitions in the house. It was a very unsettling evening. So very close to midnight, uh, I went to the landline to, uh, to call our friend and let him know that we were reasonably okay. And predictably, the phone line wouldn't work. Every time I tried to make a call, I could punch in the first few numbers, and then I would get a beep, 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 like something malfunctioning on the line. I could, regardless of the number that I tried to call, I could not get a telephone call to go through. Our cell phones, of course, were completely useless because there was no service there. We had to actually get in a vehicle. If we wanted to make a call, we would have to get in a vehicle and drive some distance from this place in order to make a call. So we began to feel very isolated. And I think these sorts of things happen in negatively haunted places where there's an intelligent presence that really wants you to feel isolated and upset and vulnerable. Uh, it was almost like something straight out of Hollywood. So we couldn't get through uh, to our friend, and he couldn't get through to us. And he was in a distant state. He'd gone away for uh, several days, and so it wasn't like he was able to uh, get in his truck and, and come down and check on us. Well, shortly after that, uh, I decided to go outside and uh, use the outdoor facilities, and I could not get the one door in the house to open. It would not budge. 
This was door to the back of the house and uh, had never had any problems sticking or anything like that. In fact, we, we couldn't even blame it on humidity or stickiness. It was like deadbolts had slammed locked. After the phone uh, malfunctioned, I decided to go out and use the facilities and I could not get the one door in the house to open. It would not budge. We never had any problem with it being sticky, and we could not blame this on humidity, anything of the sort. It was now by about 1 o'clock at night, and it was like the door had been deadbolted all up and down the door frame. And I called over a couple of guys from the group, big burly guys, and they could not get the door open. We were all tugging on the door, uh, twisting the handle. Nothing would work. Uh, It was, again, we had this feeling of of like being in a Hollywood movie, you know, the the horribly haunted house that uh, has a terrible presence in it, and and people begin to feel like there's something saying, get out, get out, but then they try and get out, and they can't because the doors are locked. Uh, I began to think that we were going to have to break windows if we wanted to get out of this place. And then all of a sudden, without any warning, door sprang open by itself, and we had no further problem. However, there was such an oppressive presence there. Sometimes you just have to know when to hold them and when to fold them and when it's a good idea to pack up your gear and go home. We figured we'd gotten enough for the night. We'd run our cameras until they quit working. We had uh, done the mini box. We'd gotten uh, EVP. We had seen shadow people, apparitions, mysterious creatures. We had a dead phone and an entity who seemed to be able to monkey with the door. We decided it was time to go. And that was one of the creepiest investigations that I have done to date. Joining us on the line is a decontamination specialist. In fact, his company is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, in Canada David Cadu, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine, Richard. How are you? Well, thank you. Could you describe what it exactly is that you do to our listeners? Well, actually, Richard, I guess um, in 1972, I had a a call uh, when I was in pest control to go into a home and actually what had happened was an apartment where a gentleman had died and been there for... uh, uh, actually one month, it was a one month decomp and they asked me to take out odor. So from then it just became history, I guess. Um, we go into homes where people have, there's either been a uh, natural causing death, a homicide or a suicide or a contamination and we go in and we make that environment a safe environment again for people to, uh, to, to come back in and live or habitate within those premises. So we decontaminate the blood pathogens or uh, remove the odor, etc., so so people can, you know, enjoy the premises again. This first instance where you became introduced to this field, I guess, you, you mentioned that the individual had passed away in this home and he, he had been only discovered after a month's time. That must That's have been... Right. That was the beginning of when I uh, got involved in, uh, in the industry, but uh, since then I've had uh, instances where people have uh, been uh, dead uh, one week, three weeks, three months, six months. I even just had one recently where there was a uh, body that was mummified. Uh, 
for six months. I don't want to get into the the, the, the graphic uh, details, but I'm I think it's probably safe to assume that you've just about seen absolutely everything. Well, Richard, yes, and it's not something I normally talk to a lot of people about because it's things you kind of keep in your heart. Uh, I've had many experiences with other people being with me. I had one particular one about six years ago. Uh, I had a cleaning job to do for a lady who had frozen to death, and uh, she was there for about six long months. And, um, you know, the smell was, was very gruesome and from the decomp, and upon entering the house, I, um, uh, I have a practice of saying uh, a quick little prayer for the rest of the soul of the deceased. And then I began uh, cleaning up the, the putrid uh, smell of the home and uh, getting it prepared to bring a, a uh, crew in the next day because it was a large home uh, in Toronto close to the Danforth. And uh, the lady uh, wasn't your typical plain Jane. She was an artist who uh, used to hold uh, children captive for a day thinking they were all her own. And uh, she used to do regular seances and powwows in the privacy of her own home, and she was a practitioner of the occult and black magic. And uh, anyway, uh, this particular home, uh, she kept children, as I mentioned, and uh, she had kind of losing her mind. And um, she didn't harm the we children, had to did she? Do this, and it wasn't a typical cleanup. Did she harm uh, the children? No, no. She was. Well, she would just hold the children in the home thinking they were hers. She had no children. Oh, I see. Okay, she was a little mentally unbalanced. Okay, so you went... She was a little unbalanced, so... She was unbalanced, yeah, and she was an artist, and she used to have a lot of uh, uh, First Nation-type art in her home, and uh, so, uh, as I was saying to you, uh, the next day, after I entered the first day, the next day I brought a crew in because I had sanitized, and... uh, I was in the kitchen with uh, one of my technicians, and uh, we were doing the bio-cleaning where she had perished in the kitchen because she had froze to death, as, uh, as I, I believe I mentioned to you. And I sent uh, one of my technicians to get something from the truck. And at this time, I had uh, thrown away with our technician uh, her Ouija board and tarot card. So. He was wearing two pairs of gloves plus a third heavy rubber pair of gloves, bio gloves, because it was very heavy, contaminated bio. So he put them down, and I asked him to go get a scraper from the truck. And at that point, when he went outside, and trying to appreciate this is also the hottest day of the year, and um, the gloves began to levitate and go to the left of me. Oh, my. And <laughs> well, you can imagine. So at that point... It didn't really do much to me. I just kind of stood back in awe and uh, just thought about it for a minute. And then uh, after a few moments, the technician came back and uh, mentioned to me that, uh, why'd you move my gloves? And I said, well, they were in my way. And uh, just uh, explaining that to him, and then uh, I left it alone. I didn't want to say any more than that. 
and then I had uh, two of my crew members uh, within minutes that I had upstairs on the third floor in the computer room. They were picking up the papers from the floor, which had fallen down from the day before when I entered the room, and I had to uh, apply sanitization and some odor applications. And um, she bent one of the uh, one of the girls. Uh, there was two ladies. Uh, was one of the girls that bent over it to pick up the papers. So. She was, oh, I would say she weighed about 230 pounds, and the other girl that was with her weighed about 100 pounds, nothing, and uh, she got pushed by some uh, inexplicable force, you know, against the wall with a thrust, and uh, the girls, uh, fearing <laughs> what was happening to them, they ran down three flights of stairs in a flash, screaming for their lives or whatever at that point and of course I called for a break and um, at that point we went outside I had six people with me it was a very hot day and the next occurrence happened minutes later when we uh, went outside the door had been open got there was no wind this day had got literally closed fast and uh the bolt got turned and locked. This was all within, I would say, a 10-minute period. And uh, from that point onward, there was another item. We had uh, a, a very large door, about 100 pounds, on a 45-degree angle. Um, and that door got pushed the opposite way on a windless day. So... Altogether, these things happen within about 15 minutes. How often, uh, David, are you encountering this sort of paranormal activity uh, during the course of your your work? I mean, does it happen 10% of the time, 50% of the time, 1% of the I, time? Mm, I would say, depending, you know, I'd have to, if you put it in percentage basis, I would have to say, you know, 5% of the time. That's still like it. That's high. That's still pretty high. Five times well, out of a hundred, you're encountering paranormal activity. Well, you know, the only way I can answer that uh, question to you, Richard, is every circumstance is unique. If it's, uh, I get a lot of uh, suicides, you know, and these, to me, these are souls or people that have a lot of unrest. Um... I had a, uh, a home uh, a while ago, about February of this year, and I, I went and it was um, a home where I was called in for, um, um, basically it was supposed to be a um, two uh, mother and daughter. They were both Wiccans. Witches, okay. And, um, I got called into this particular home and uh, was determined that... Uh, they had uh, committed suicide. While I was there, I managed to find their entry of their notes. And um, I think I have it here. This is the last entry. The, oh, excuse me. This is a this is their a, a copy their diary. It's in front of me right now on my hand. Okay. And um, it uh, was a job that I was doing outside of Toronto and. Um, Apparently, the, I was told they had committed suicide, so I had to go to the home and 
says, today we leave Earth. We want people to celebrate our lives, not our deaths. It's now 1.07 p.m. The gun is loaded with some buckshot. No head will be unblown. I'm trying to make that word out, you answer, but anyway, um, we'll be blown. Uh, just mom and me. Um, Locke will hopefully live with him, whatever that means, I'm not sure. You'd better take her, and we're watching criminal minds. Mom wants to clean house so it's not messy. We are going to be dead. To concerned women, so in a couple of hours, we should be dead. Hopefully, it's not painful, and it's fast. Shot to be heard should be. This is the only thing I am worried about. Uh, and it says, peace and love. And I won't say the name. No, no. And it's got another entry beside it. Dear whoever, which I won't say the names, please use this book for journaling. I know it seems a little morbid, but it's an awesome book. Kitties love you three lots. <laughs> so this is an entry. Now, in that home, when I went, it was a gruesome sight. And while I was there, I was uh, the first time I was there for a while by myself, and then I brought the crew the next day. But why I thought I'd mention this particular one is um, I had experience in the home um, lights and orbs. Lights and orbs, okay. Well, I don't know how else to explain it to you. You know, round balls of light. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, that's, streaks of light. I'm familiar with, the, with, with that particular term. A, an orb is uh, often associated with, with some sort of a spirit or ghost. Well, correct. I've had uh, photographs of myself when I've been cleaning with uh, many orbs going around me, which uh, actually uh, my, my son had taken, I think, when I was doing some jobs. And uh, I've, I, I've experienced that many-fold on jobs. And uh, just things, you know, you can't typically explain. Um, David Cadu is uh, with us. He's a decontamination uh, specialist who works uh, in and around Toronto, and as you can imagine, it's a rather a gruesome uh, occupation at times. However, he is certainly doing an incredible uh, public service, if you can imagine, uh, having a loved one that's passed away in a home, and uh, uh, David uh, and his crew will go into the home and, and clean up uh, and, and make that, that home uh, hospitable uh, once again. Uh, David... Uh, you you are a spiritual person, but have you become more spiritual as a result of doing this work and seeing some of the things that you've seen? I'm not I'm not talking just about having to work so closely with death. I'm talking about encountering some of these this paranormal phenomenon. Has that made you more spiritual? Um, in all reality, no, because I think my uh, personally. My whole life has been spiritual, you know, ever since I was a child. It just gave, makes me more aware of people.
struggle on the other side. All right, hold on, David. We'll take a quick time out, come back, and uh, more of our conversation on the other side. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. (laughs) You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Decontamination specialist David Cadieu is with us, sharing some of the aspects of his rather gruesome occupation and some of the strange things that have happened to him while on the job. How do you reconcile uh, your spirituality with some of the things that you're seeing uh, because when we're getting into the the area of ghosts and so forth um, and I, I don't know how much you, you want to reveal about your personal faith but some of that some of the things that you see in fact might con- run contrary to your belief system no? Um no, I, I think not. If you, anyone who believes in life after death, you know, and we know there is a, a good and a bad, a heaven and a hell, sort of speak as, as we're uh, raised as children and taught, then there has to be unrest, you know. I mean, uh, judgment day is coming when we'll all be together, uh, so to speak. So if these souls are wandering, then, then they're wandering. I have many people who come and work for us, um, agnostics, uh, atheists, if you have it, who don't believe in anything. And they, they've come to work for me, and I, and I look at them, and they say, I don't believe in anything. And I'll look at them one day, and I, I in all reality, Richard, I don't fear these things. I have no fear of them. Uh, you know, I'm not afraid of them. And I'll say, before I'm through, you'll follow your parents. You know, it's simple and sweet. I had uh, one job last year with one of my technicians who doesn't believe in God at all. And uh, we had done a, a suicide in a, uh, an apartment in Thorncliffe Park. And um, it was a lady, and I remember very well, um, I had to gather all her contents together. And this one particular technician, uh, he went downstairs, and it, our people, I don't allow them to wear any of the clothing when they're going down and up in the building, so no one's aroused any suspicion to what we're doing. And he went downstairs, and he's this typical type of farmer Joe type guy with the suspenders and everything. And uh, he was about five foot four, and uh, he went down the elevator. And um, this uh, Oriental lady um, was talking to him in the hallway and, and, and said to him, uh, he was just waiting for the elevator, and she came up and says, uh, 
you two somebody dead? And he said, excuse me, says, you two somebody dead? And he said, why? And she said and to him, she's with you right now. And she ran away. Oh, my. So make a long story short, he, was, he had goosebumps all over, and he started uh, having an awareness of that there might be something else out there. Have you ever felt that you've been in the presence of pure evil? Um, you 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 do. I've had the cold. I've uh, been in spots, situations where it's uh, been very evil, where there's been a lot of black magic uh, used and symbolism in homes, and you get your cold spots, you know, etc. Yes, yes, absolutely. Have you no seen? Out of my mind about that. Have you personally um, seen anything in particular that happened to me as being very evil? No, I haven't had the experience other than hot spell, uh, the cold spells, rather, and um, just uncanny feelings. You know that this presence is there, which is very uncomfortable. When you go into a, a home where there's been a violent death, or or maybe not, but you, I'm guessing that, um, do, you, do you have to take pictures for insurance or anything like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything ever showed? One hundred percent. I take hundreds of pictures, and uh, it's good that you bring that up. I remember one time uh, a few years ago, we had taken pictures of a particular job that was out in Scarborough, and um, I, I usually take pictures sometimes of the technicians working, like if there's two technicians, three technicians. So I remember mentioning the technicians to sit down on a sofa. And I took pictures. And I, you know, we take now with digital cameras, we take pictures and uh, then we back them up and we just send them off. Well, I don't look at every picture I take. I just send them off. And uh, I told the adjuster, there's, there's a picture with the two technicians. He said, who's the third? And it was a woman. It was a spirit. Oh, my. So, you know, these are just some of the instances that, that have happened. Uh, and that... Uh, I remember one other job uh, a few years back, uh, about two years ago, out in Weston, Ontario, which is actually Weston Road and Eglinton Avenue, the oldest farmhouse in uh, that area on one particular street. The woman, they had come to uh, take her away because she was sickly and put her in a home, but her son had died on the steps about a month earlier, and she was unaware of it. But what I remember about this particular job is um, we had to empty the home completely. And uh, the particular Saturday morning before the crew came in, I was waiting for one of these big uh, bins, a 20-yard bin to come in. And I had to wait for the delivery, so I went in very early. And I just remember walking around this home, and all I could hear was a little bell ring, like a dinner bell, constantly, constantly. Yeah, pictures uh, with uh, spirits. I've taken them, seen them, and experienced things like that many times. Have you ever been personally uh, terrified? No. I won't allow myself to. I can't afford to be. I won't be intimidated. 
by a spirit because, um, as I said, I, I, I find by praying for the soul of the deceased upon entering, and I usually try to know their name, and I just tell them, you know, God rest your soul. I'm only here to clean your home and make it look good, you know, and I ask them to have peace. And I find usually that's what's important. I've heard other people uh, be disrespectful in homes towards the deceased, and I've seen them encounter problems, you know, like being pushed over, uh, slipping. What, what, you know, you could say, well, it's just coincidental, but what have you. You, no. you, you know, you read the facts. Well, after, after you've seen all that you've seen, you, you can pretty much discount that those are coincidences. Is it hard to find people uh, to work with you after they, uh, they get, a, a, I guess, a taste of the, some of this paranormal activity on the job? Do they stick around, or do you go through a lot of personnel? No, they'll, they'll, they'll stick around. They'll stick around, but it's an eye-opener for them. I mean, our industry has a high turnover. It does have a high turnover, but uh, they'll stick around and uh, it'll be an eye-opener and they'll remember the experience. Um, there are some people who won't, but most of them will stick around. I mean, fear is fear. Either you're afraid or you're not. I, I mean, why should I be afraid of a spirit? What's it going to do to me? Seriously, I mean, I'm bigger than it. It's not going to you know, it, it may push some people over, but you know what? Maybe I can push back in ways it's not prepared for. Well, as a spiritual person, you have uh, some protection, obviously, as as a uh, a God-fearing person. Yes, I do. David, well, thank God that there are people out there like you who are willing to do this kind of work. It's obviously not for everyone. It takes a, a particularly strong individual, uh, I think, to do this kind of work. And um, also uh, a sensitivity, because as you say, uh, there are some perhaps who are attracted to this type of work because perhaps they have some sort of a, a morbid uh, sensibility. Uh, but you obviously come to this with, uh, with you know, uh, and treat each case with a great deal of uh, reverence and respect and uh, you're to be commended for that. And um, is is there, um, did you want to leave a, a website or, or name the company, or I'll leave that up to you? Well, you know what, Richard? My name has been around a long time. I'm just Canada's decontamination specialist, and that's all I need to say. <laughs> Enough said. But, uh, I, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and... Uh, talking about our particular work it's the most gratifying work in the world i could think of nothing else i'd rather do well you're you're coming to people and uh, aid and, and providing comfort and uh, assistance to them uh, when they're at their uh, the, really their lowest point they're most vulnerable obviously when they're in uh, terrible grief so again uh, i applaud you for the for the work that you do and uh, thank you for joining us tonight on the conspiracy show quite welcome, Richard, and any time I can be of service, please don't hesitate to call. David Cadu, Canada's decontamination specialist. When we come back, a phone call and a scary tale from our very own rock and roll investigator, 
are Gary Patterson. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the mash. He did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. He did the mash. It caught on in a flash. He did the mash. He did the monster mash. In search of sunken cities and weird science, mythical beasts, and modern-day bloodsuckers. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett continues from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Hi, this is R. Gary Patterson, the author of The Walrus Was Paul, Hellhounds on the Trail, and Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll, Myths, Legends, and Curses. And I would like to wish my very good friend Richard Serrett and all his fabulous listeners a very, very incredible Halloween season. As far as my paranormal story goes, I guess it goes in the research of my second book, Hellhounds on Their Trail, where I had visited the infamous crossroads right outside Clarksdale, Mississippi, where Highway 61 intersects Highway 49. And of legend, this is where Robert Johnson supposedly made his deal with the devil. Well, shortly after my book came out, I went with several of my friends from Memphis all the way down to Clarksdale, We went to the crossroads, made some photos, went into a cemetery that was created in 1850. Now, the cemetery is interesting because, according to legend, Robert Johnson said he learned to play the guitar in graveyards at night, instructed by the devil. Now, I was telling the story to my friends when, all at once, one of the girls, Corliss, found this black snake coiled around a tombstone. So, strangely, she takes a stick and starts beating the snake, and I stopped her and I said, you know, Snakes in the cemetery in the Delta at this time, especially with a legend, I think what you need to do is you need to leave the snake alone. And I was laughing, so I didn't think very much of it. But as we were going back to the car, one of my other friends, Alan, said, Gary, you know what we have to do? We have to bring some dirt. So we get down on our knees, and he had some sandwich bags. So we had a few sandwiches we were eating, and we break up the dirt, put it in two bags, and off we go. Now, it was Sunday when we left. I didn't think anything of it. We all returned home, and as soon as I got home, my phone was ringing, I mean, just incessantly. I found out that Corliss, the girl who had beaten the snake with the stick, was rushed to the hospital in Arkansas when she got home, and she had a brain aneurysm, and she was in emergency surgery. Fifteen minutes after I left Alan's home, he was rushed to the hospital with a heart attack. He was the one who helped me dig the dirt. The strangest thing is the dirt wasn't in my car. I get a phone call from Lynn, who was with us, and the dirt wound up in her bag. And she told me that when she got home that night, that her son had had some sort of ticket with the police. The burglar alarm system on her house was going off incessantly, and she felt this evil presence in her house. And I thought, hmm, okay, she's a victim of legend. She goes to work the next day, early Monday, and she three times has to return to her house when the alarm goes off. It was like the motion detector was picking up some presence in her home. So now she's all out of sorts. She calls me, and I told her, I said, listen, Lynn, take the dirt, throw it in the river. She takes the dirt, she throws it away, 
and obviously everything subsided. I didn't hear anything else. Well, a few months later, a surprise birthday party was held for me. All my friends come up, and as they were giving me gifts, I noticed this very peculiar package. And as I opened it up, there was an antique glass bottle with a cork stopper, and inside it, Alan had brought me about a quarter of a bottle of Crossroads dirt. Now today, that Crossroads dirt sits on my, my desk when I write and when I do my interviews, and nothing's happened to me. And I think one of the reasons why is a few months later, I went to Rome with some friends, and I went to the Vatican, and I went to the bookstore, and there was this incredible crucifix. And I had the opportunity to have it blessed by the Pope, John Paul II. So it was blessed, and I, I guess I have it sitting in my house. And so in my desk, I guess it's uh, the midnight of the Garden of Good and Evil because I've got the crossroad dirt of Robert Johnson and a blessed crucifix by John Paul II. So I guess there's no harm coming. But that's my story. And I have another mix of them on the show. So, Richard, thank you for having me on, and have a great Halloween. Matthew James Didier is the founder and director of the Toronto Ghosts and Hauntings Research Society. Matthew, how are you doing? Very well, and yourself, sir? Very well, thank you. A lot of uh, weekend hobbyists out there poking around in haunted houses and, and, uh, uh, and ghost hunting, it's become this huge hobby for a lot of people. Uh, now, for someone who's dedicated uh, you know, a good portion of your life to this, I believe you formed... Uh, Toronto Ghosts in around 1997, 13 years, that's a long time. But do these amateurs, if I can use that word, do you find that uh, somewhat annoying? Do they tend to get in the way? Well, we're amateurs too. We're definitely not professionals. We don't get paid for this ourselves. We try to act in a professional manner, and that's kind of what we hope other people will do too. Realistically, if people have an interest and they want to pursue it, that's fine, provided if they go to, shall we say, some of the better-known haunts of the city, the historic sites and the museums, they come in with a respect and, and understand that they are guests as much as they are investigators. And as long as that respect level is there, actually it can be quite useful, because sometimes they tell us things we didn't know about. But, uh, I mean, you, you, granted, you're, you're not paid for this, but um, you have, I'm guessing, a more disciplined uh, investigative uh, methodology than, uh, than your weekend warrior. Well, yes and no, actually. I think anybody is capable of doing a thorough investigation. The only thing that might separate us from the pack is that we do work, to, as you said, to a standard one that was more or less set down by people who came before us, such as uh, Britain's Ghost Club, which has been around for well over 100 years, and, and the Society for Psychical Research, of which I'm a member. These are these kind of laid out the platform from which we work from, which is a, a very scientific and neutral standpoint, uh, which means coming in without any preconceived notion as to what we may find or may not find. And again, I, a lot of people can do that. It, it, the secret is disciplining yourself and saying, I'm willing to go in there and say, I'm here to find out what I can find out, as opposed to I'm, I'm going to Fort York, for example, to see the ghost in the center blockhouse. Because the minute you say that, you're going to taint your own findings and you might taint your own viewpoint. It's called being a corrupted uh, target, uh, going in and expecting something and expecting it to such a degree that it happens. And therefore, certain things that otherwise might have gone unnoticed or, or immediately you would have realized were a natural causation rather than supernatural can be overwritten in your mind and you can get a little, well, for lack of a better term, excited about it. Sometimes it isn't that much. 
Ghost hunting in Toronto, I mean, does that present certain uh, challenges as opposed to, let's say, ghost hunting in some location in Europe? What I'm getting at is uh, Toronto is, uh, by European standards, a very young city. And, uh, you know, the architecture, we have some architecture that dates back to, uh, uh, you know, the the mid-18th century. A lot of original architecture, of course, was, was burnt in, in, uh, in a fire. So... I'm, I'm wondering, to the extent that, that ghosts are tied to a particular place, whether ghost hunting in a relatively new city uh, pre- presents certain challenges. I That's a difficult uh, question to answer. I can only sort of go by what I've read in the books that I read from, especially, obviously, England, uh, a few from Germany, France, Belgium. Yeah, The answer to that, I hate to say this, is yes or no. It doesn't so much seem to be a case of where, you know, if some place is older, there are more ghosts. But what you do have happening is there are more people who've been around to witness it. So in England, it's not unusual to hear, you know, the ghost at Hampton Court has been seen for 300 years. Well, that would be difficult in Toronto, where your oldest edifice that's still hanging around is from the 1790s. But another thing to consider when you're looking at ghosts, oddly enough, is is the culture of the area that you're looking at. Places that have a culture that is more steeped in, uh, especially Judeo-Christian religions, will tend not to have many ghosts, but they'll have a heck of a lot of uh, demons and angel sightings. Oh, right, right. And whereas you'll find places that do not have that, or mostly were a Protestant-type affair, or, or secular, uh, or non-secular, rather, uh, you'll get a definitely a lot more ghosts. Uh, the concept of the spirits of, of the dead somehow still wandering around us is a little more accepted, so therefore people will be more uh, apt to report it and not try to write in uh, any kind of religious connotation to it. So when you look at all those aspects of of not just age, but population base, uh, how long has the population base been in this particular spot? Uh, What is the cultural background of the people primarily that have been there? That's how you can sort of guess how many ghost reports you'll have from an area. But realistically, does Toronto have less ghosts per capita than, say, the city of London in England? Probably not. Probably has just as many. They're just not as well known. Matthew James Didier is the founder and director of Toronto Ghosts and Hauntings Research Society. Tools of the trade, Matthew, what do you take along on a typical investigation? Well, the most important thing one can bring is basically your eyes, especially your ears. Uh, We like pencil and paper or pen and paper and critical thinking. Um, Those are actually the most important tools anyone can bring to any investigation. Because realistically, what you're going to be working from first and foremost is witness testimony or, or witness data, which means you should go into a place knowing what people have said or what they think is happening and you should be able to look at these things and decide for yourself again has that been uh played up for the sake of a good horror story or is it something that you know maybe people that said uh we heard footsteps coming up and down the stairs and it's a duplex and they have neighbors kind of thing again critical thinking skills could be very useful for that keeping notes and taking notes when talking to witnesses are very is very important and other than that, that's all you need initially to get started. Uh, other nice things to have are things like a camera to take photos. Basically, 
recording devices, but those are kind of unnecessary. To initially get out and to get started, really, you just need to know the story. You need to listen to the witnesses. Take in, keep in mind the data that you're looking at and look at the site you're in. And that really is a great way to start. How often are people calling you to tell, to ask you to come to, to come to their private residence because they suspect that there is some, some ghost activity? Well, we, we do get actually probably about one or two per week, to be totally honest with you. That's a lot. It is a lot, but we do have a, 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 it usually doesn't pan out too much, to be honest, because we're very open in the fact that we're not house clearers. We're not ghost busters, per no. se. We are documentarians. Now, we sort of say to people, what we will do is we will come in and try to, to record or capture, somehow measure the phenomena that's happening, as you know, that as I was talking about empirical, <laughs> empirically proving things. Um, beyond that, the only thing we can really offer them is a good look around to see if we can find a natural cause to what's being experienced. But we don't use psychics as our frontline uh, tools, and we don't offer house clearings or things along those lines. And a lot of people, uh, that is kind of what they're looking for. And I got to sort of jump in there and say that more so over the last few years than really the first 10 we were around. Uh, the first decade we were around, we didn't get it all that often. We We'd get people wanting us to come in and, you know, try to record or photograph things. House clearing has jumped up a lot, and what's interesting is is a lot of the cases, the the people have ascribed the whatever's going on to a demonic entity as opposed to a ghost almost. They, they, they're ascribing a demonic or evil kind of presence. And what's interesting is is we can't help but notice that a lot of these tend to follow a certain cable reality television program. Right, right. You know, I was going to say, I, I think the, the, an explanation for that is is that people are just so, never leaving the, the demons aside for a moment, people are just now so open uh, to this uh, possibility that uh, once they hear a noise or they see something, they don't need confirmation. It's almost like they're leapfrogging over you. It's like you're the middleman. They don't need uh, you know, verification of indication. They say, aha, no, we've got a ghost, honey. Let's get it cleared. I think maybe that's what's going on. Well, it, it is a bit of that. And, and to be honest, there's nothing wrong with that because, of course, we want to hear about the experiences. But it's very easy to misinterpret things if your mind is in a particular space. Um, one person's ghost is another person's angel is another person's demon. And... Whereas, you know, if someone was sitting in a bathroom and suddenly the light went off, um, one person might say, oh my gosh, it knew that most people die in the bathroom because they slip on tiles, so therefore it's evil and attacking me. The right. other person will say, oh, it was playful. That was a game. You know, it was doing that as a joke. Another person will say, it's letting me know it's here. And when you see that gamut, and that is how the witness interprets how things are happening, and that is pretty much how they will... will fly with it, so to speak. So yeah, right now, with the rise of this one particular show, there is an, uh, an upswing in people who, who truly believe things that are happening are, are not good. They are evil. And one of the things we sort of tell people is that if you look at, again, the American Society of Psychical Research, the Society for Psychical Research, the Ghost Club, all these groups that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, and collectively thousands upon thousands of cases, and truly add up the amount of times someone has been to a hospital or, has seen med or had to seek medical attention 
because they were harmed by a ghost is two. Two. And that was That's the it. Bell Witch in the early 1800s and the Entity Case in California. Other than that, the most common reason for people to be physically hurt by an entity is, is trying to escape it, to flee it, and they ping into things or trip. Uh, unfortunately, and this is something I wish more people would, would know or understand, is that the amount of people that have been hurt, both physically and emotionally and, and financially, and even some deaths, are from exorcisms and, and to a degree, house clearings, exorcisms obviously being far more lethal, uh, where over 10 people have died in the last 10 years from botched exorcisms, either dehydrated to death or, or starved to death or beaten to death in, in a few cases. So we say to people, you should really look at what's happening in your home or in your business or wherever and decide if it's really something you're, you're is, is it really terrifying you? Is it really that negative? Is it, is it, is it threatening? Because the statistics don't bear that out. You've got far more to worry about by the people that are, you know, sharing oxygen with you that are quite corporeal than you have of anything that is a little more supernatural. Matthew James Didier is the founder and director of Toronto Ghosts and Hauntings Research Society here on the Conspiracy Show AM 740. Ever seen a ghost, Matthew? Um, I, I have seen things I cannot completely understand that I'm always looking for good answers for. Tell That's me the reason I do this. Tell me one. Tell me about one. Oh, gosh. Uh, I would say the most interesting one for me, as far as a visual, uh, was at Fort George in Niagara-on-the-Lake. And why it was interesting to me is that I had a piece of electronics that picked it up as well, except it didn't. And I'll explain that now. I had an autofocus point-and-shoot 35-millimeter camera was the only thing I had. Uh, it was in the evening, and it was just near the Ford's entrance. And I was turned to take a picture of a particular gun emplacement that's just off the side of, of the main entrance. And all of a sudden, I noticed a head sort of bobbing up in the shadows. And I figured, oh, it's it's one of our investigators, or it's possibly the folks from the Ford, and they're just coming to have a chat with me. And I put my camera down, I took it down, and I realized there was no one coming near me at all. Like, I couldn't see the person, so I put the viewfinder back up to my eye, and lo and behold, there's the head, this person coming towards me. And my autofocus was flickering, telling me, yes, there is something in front of this camera, and I'm trying desperately to focus on it, and it's moving. And yet I couldn't see anything with the naked eye. Now, before anybody sends me an email or, or anything along those lines, I know there's three really good things that I should know about that. Number one is a camera really won't pick up anything a human eye can't. Uh, they work on the same principles. A uh, human eye can only see things that light either reflects or is absorbed by, same as camera and film. Number two, it could have been an insect or something small that had gotten near the autofocus, causing it to flicker, but it wouldn't explain why this thing seemed to be a, a head and shoulders and human frame bobbing up into the view viewfinder. Uh, I did manage to rattle off a picture quickly when I realized this was very strange, and to be honest, absolutely nothing came out on the picture, because mm. that would have been, you know, too easy for me. Uh, one has to wonder if these things don't have a sense of humor and enjoy torturing people like us. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, what about a, a particular investigation uh, that, that stands out uh, in, in your mind, either in a residence or a, a commercial building, uh, wherever? I have a few. Um, I would say probably the most unusual one 
was a place that unfortunately was bulldozed to the ground a few years ago. And that is, uh, it was called Branson. It's up north near, uh, in, a, in a place called Baptiste Lake, uh, near Bancroft, Ontario. And why it sticks out in my head is because uh, what happened was a visual as well, and again, I did see it, but it was also seen by other people, and there was another part of the phenomena that was kind of strange. And that was, uh, me and a group of the investigators were sitting down, and this is in the wee hour, not terribly late, but in the wee hours of the morning. And I noticed there was, seemed to be what I could only describe as almost like a pillar of smoke moving around this one room that was just off to the side of where we were. Um, we were very interested in it. It did seem to be moving rather methodically, but we didn't have anything concrete. We didn't have anything, you know, that I could say other than it seems to be there. I had the bright idea finally, and this was the first time, as far as I know, it's ever been done. I had a, a laser pointer on my keychain because in my job, actually, I, I was in IT and I occasionally had to do training and I had the laser pointer. And I shone it at this pillar of smoke and actually, yes, it visibly dimmed the laser light as it went through, which, of course, was wonderful and great. And, of course, as usual, no good camera that would pick it up because, again, that would have been too good. Now, what made it stand out for me, though, was after all this had happened and, and after we'd seen this thing for, for literally a well over a half an hour, uh, we kind of stopped and, and went, well, it's not going anywhere and there's nothing we can do about it, so we might as well just relax and let it run its course. And while we were there, I was the first person who smelled it, and I said, did somebody smell powder? I smell baby powder or one of those. The person beside me said, no, no, I don't smell powder. I smell perfume. And then a person not too far from them said, no, 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 it's flowers. I smell flowers. And we started bickering over what the smell was until one person managed to, through a head cold, sort of sniffle up and just said the magic word, lavender. Mm. And all of us in news went, well, yeah. And it never occurred to all of us arguing that, well, powder, flowers, soap, perfume, yeah, that's lavender. So it was very interesting for me in the fact that we all had the same sensation, but all of us put it differently. It's also rather telling on how people look at these things. This pillar of smoke that you saw, did it appear to have uh, intelligence? I mean, was it moving deliberately about the room, or was it just wafting through the air? Well, it wasn't in the room with us, which would have been much better. It was in an, a room connecting to us, and every time we tried to enter that room, it seemed to dissipate and disappear. Then we'd go back to our original room, and it would slowly but surely sort of recompose itself and be there. It didn't have a form. It didn't look like a person. It didn't look like anything. One of the investigators had it very nicely said when she said it's like the, the from the movie Predator, and when it's in stealth mode. That's what she said it kind of reminded her of, and, and I would agree that was a pretty good yes. Uh, it did seem to be moving, at least with some sense, around a dining room table, because it was a dining room that this was around. So it was sort of moving methodically, but I couldn't say it was like cleaning the table or, or was coming up to the door and looking at us and then leaving, because, again, we couldn't see any features or anything. And it never got close enough to us to really sort of make a point, if you know what I mean, to sort of go, yes, that is something or someone that's interested in us. So I don't know if it was cognizant, if it was a person, if it was something strange. I can say that the likelihood of it being smoke or something natural is very unlikely. Um, it did break a, a laser pointer's light, but not thoroughly. I, I'd love to say this laser pointer stopped. No, it just simply dimmed. Luckily, there was a white wall on the one side, and it dimmed the light on the white wall. But 
beyond that, no, I really couldn't say. That's that's part of the reason that and that that particular investigation has always intrigued me. One of the one of the two. Matthew James Didier is the founder and director of Toronto Ghosts and Hauntings Research Society. What about Toronto's underground, our subway, our much maligned subway system here? <laughs> uh, is well, it our ha- new mayor has anything to do about it? It's much bigger soon. <laughs> Let's hope. Is it haunted though, Matthew? Uh, there are a couple of stories from the subway. Um, Lower Bay Station probably is the most interesting and, oddly enough, the most reported. And and for me, that's very interesting because, of course, it was never really a station. Lower Bay Station is pretty much where it says it is, Lower Bay. And it was meant as a turning off point for a a train that was going to be an express route to downtown, but it never got off the ground. So they've used the station as a a, uh, training station and they've filmed commercials and things down there. Now, on the track level in this never-used station, people have reported seeing a woman in a red dress. Now, to be honest and, and a little cynical, this would be unremarkable in some ways. And it'd be like, well, you know, so one or two people. But it's not one or two people. I have literally dozens of reports from staff members and people that have been down there on tours and film crews. So the lady in red at Lower Bay Station does seem to be around. Uh, I've never seen her, and no one's ever gotten a photograph of her, but enough people have said that she's there to make it very interesting. Um, the other ghost on the TTC, well, there is there is apparently a man in sort of antique garb who will show up on the subway between Jane Station and the Old Mill, hmm. who apparently is sort of glanced by people on the subway, and, and then when they sort of double-check to see, you know, what he's dressed weirdly, he disappears. Apparently he's dressed in what most people call either Edwardian or Victorian gear with a top hat. So he's kind of hard to miss. Um, but aside from him and aside from the Lady in Red, uh, apparently if you just want ooky feelings in a very kind of scary place, uh, the subway uh, area down near York Mill Subway Station apparently has a, just a kind of a very strange vibe about it. And again, it's something that a lot of the employees have, have noted and talked about. And there is a story that there was a rather fierce battle there back before there was a subway uh, between uh, two native tribes. Ah, interesting. And they figured that's where maybe this is coming from. Hard to say, but I do know that the the reports from there are are rather, I'll I'll call it, they're a little disturbing. Because there is something very strange about being in in a dark tunnel, you know, very far away from anywhere to, you know, get out to daylight. And feeling very oppressed. Uh, Matthew, I'm going to ask you, what is the most reportedly haunted location in Toronto? The one that, uh, you know, the most people claim to have seen. But before you answer, I'm going to take a guess. Go for it. I'm going to guess the Keg Mansion on Jarvis Street. You're wrong. Oh. You are dead wrong. Really? The Keg Mansion does get some reports, but it's definitely not the most reported place in the city. And statistically, I, I can sort of show the evidence for that. Nope, there are two sites that are neck and neck with each other, and honest to gosh, literally every month we get a report or two from both, and they literally do sort of change places in the, in the horse race. One is Old Fort York. Ah, yes. Uh, Old Fort York, right down at uh, Fleet Street, right at the uh, CNE by the Prince's Gates. If, if, if anyone listening to this has never been there, definitely worth visiting. Fantastic reports in there. And best part is, is there daytime and nighttime. There's no good or bad time if you're interested in that sort of thing to go. But it is vitally important that you do know the history of the site. So the, 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 the haunted locale that's neck and neck with Old Fort York would be? It is Humber College's 
Lakeshore Campus, which is the former Lakeshore Psychiatric Hospital. Ah. Now, I do want to ring a bell on this one. People go, oh, it's because of the horrible torture and awful things that have happened there. No, they really should take a deep breath and realize that although there were some very bad things done in the name of psychiatric health in the day, they didn't know they were bad. They thought they were helping people. And that when you talk to the nurses and doctors and people that were there, even during the bad times, which we have, no, they really cared. They were trying their best. And actually, it was a very progressive hospital where, where the people that were in there were, were literally growing their own food and, and trying to live a normal life. So it was very nice. But yes, of course, there were things going on in there, which as of now we know were very bad, such as uh, basically the, the hot and cold water treatments and uh, obviously lobotomies and other things such as that, and, and very tragic and very sad. And people that were there were not happy. They were in a mental hospital. And it does seem to have more than its fair share of reports and still coming in, still coming in like crazy from people who are with the college now and people who were working in the construction when they re renovated it over the last few years. What are they seeing? What are they reporting? Well, the most scary one. And since it's Halloween, you got to go with the scary one. Even though I kind of, you know, I try to be very serious. But this one even kind of sends a chill up my spine. And that was, it was from the, the Police Academy films were filmed there. Right, right. Before it became the college. And they were uh, finishing off a shoot in what they call it tunnels, but what they were, they're not tunnels, they're, they're sort of almost bunkerish kind of affairs that connect all the buildings. They're mostly above ground. And one of the fellows was in sort of clearing out extras and cleaning up gear, and he saw someone dressed as a nurse. Now, again, his brain just went, oh, it's one of the extras, you know, dressed as a nurse. Oh, well, you know. And he tried to get this person's attention, and they wouldn't pay attention to him. And finally, he went straight up to him, and they turned around, and the nurse just had an oval where her face should be. Oh, my. No nose, eyes, mouth, just white oval. It scared the hoo-ha out of him. I guess and so. I had to admit, yes, hearing that would be definitely disturbing to me, too. Uh, it is a place that is ripe even still with what, what we consider poltergeist activity, which is uh, doors opening and closing, furniture being moved around, strange noises. Um, there have been the apparitions. The nurse has been seen more than a couple of times. Uh, voices, we were discussing EVP earlier. There have been voices heard, which is interesting. People have actually heard people shouting and, and talking even though no one's been in the building. Uh, and, and it's just, it, it's, it is a kind of a hotbed. Well, Matthew, this has been a, a delight, and uh, I, I thank you for your time. If people want to get a hold of the Toronto Ghosts and Haunting Research Society, what do they do? We're strictly an online group. Just uh, go to the website, www.torontoghosts.org. I always have to tell people that that S, that Toronto Ghosts, because there's more than one. Uh, if you go there, there's uh, we have an online form if you want to fill it out if you've had an experience to make life a little easier. Or you can find many email contacts in there. Just click on one of them and send us whatever you'd like, questions, uh, experiences, anything you can give us. We welcome everything. All right, Matthew, this has been great. We'll do it again sometime. Great, thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. When we come back, a phone call from End Times prophecy expert Nils Hamron and an update on Initiative 300. This is a ballot initiative in Denver, Colorado that if voted in successfully could mean the formation of a UFO commission, the first ever in the world 
in Denver, Colorado. I'll speak with Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics Canada and the man behind the initiative, Jeff Peckman. That's all up and coming here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Don't go away. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Hi, Richard. This is Nels Hamron from New Jersey. I thought I would uh, relate this message at... Uh, happened to me back in June of 1977. I have never forgotten it. It saved my uh, career, actually. And uh, it came at a time when I had been unemployed, uh, even though I did have little sporadic jobs from time to time. But I was unemployed from about 1975 until 19, June of 1977. And that was a long span of time, believe me. And I was trying to support uh, four children, a wife, a big house in Randolph Township, and uh, the money just was not coming in. Finally, somebody came along and offered me a, a job as a personnel consultant uh, working in a uh, firm in Orange, New Jersey. And I would be there for about four months training, <clears throat> and then at the end of the four months, I would... Uh, be given my own office and my own uh, ability to hire and fire people and uh, actually run the office as though it was my own business, even though it would be linked to them and in a way that was a good thing because they had the expertise. So for four months I trained there, went in every single day just like it was a job, but uh, uh, we tried to work on the phones, we tried to um, get people like shipping captains and uh, people that worked the docks and uh, persons that uh, did truck driving, let's say, cross-country. Those people are a little bit hard to find. And when you do have somebody like that and you call a shipping company, uh, they're pleased to hear about it. They don't rebuke you. They want to know all about this person and uh, what their experiences is. And it, it is a practical service, I will say that. But anyway, we were doing this in a very bad time. The economy was tanking. Um, it, it just seemed that every day we went to work, it was getting worse. And uh, we would discuss all this among ourselves, uh, myself and the other guys there training. There were probably about maybe 10 people all together. And we all started on the same day, and we were all supposed to get an office uh, when we were finished, uh, all on the same day as well. Well, to make a long story short, we went through all the training, and we did place a few people here and there uh, to give us a feel for it as to what it involved. And when the day came, uh, and we were supposed to get a nice big office, the announcement came in the office that nobody was going to get an office. The office they were in was the only office they could afford to run at this point in time. We were welcome to stay if we wanted to, and, and work the phones, or we could just uh, leave. And this was happening about 10 in the morning. We had just gotten there a short time earlier. 
and uh, nobody had any inkling this was about to happen. I went into a spare room, which was basically a storeroom for old office furniture and old, uh, real old office equipment, uh, ancient typewriters and that sort of thing. And in there was a uh, teletype machine that, uh, to me, looked very, very old. But I was in there, and I was looking out the window down at the street below, and I was saying to myself, you know, you spend four months training for something that doesn't exist, and this world is just no good uh, for people that are unemployed. It's just whoever is unemployed just sees the world in very, very dark eyes, and that's the way I was seeing it at that time. I didn't know what to do. I had no plans. I had no alternatives. All I could do was go home and tell my wife that uh, I had lost uh, the office and I was not going to have an office. And uh, while I'm saying that to myself, I hear this clickety, clickety, click. And I'm wondering, what is that? And I turned around, and the teletype machine, which to me was an old, old antique, was actually producing a slip of paper. Well, I looked down at that machine, and I really couldn't believe what I was seeing, because here comes a little ribbon of paper coming out, and it's got something printed on it, and I didn't even know that the machine was plugged in. In fact, I don't believe it was plugged in. So I took that little bit of paper and went over against the window where I could get some light in that dark room, and it was a job listing at the General Motors plant in Linden, New Jersey, and I had really no idea there was a GM plant there. So I looked at the uh, job qualifications, and uh, it was something that actually, because of my uh, experience with the John Deere company, I was able to get that job. And I went down there, and I uh, was interviewed by foremen and union representatives, they wanted to know what uh, my past history was, of course, and they kept asking me who sent me. And the reason was that there was no such job. Uh, they didn't know about it. They had not uh, advertised it, but they thought I possibly could fit in in a various uh, way, you know, than uh, what they had been hiring in the past. And so they did hire me, and it turned out that... Uh, the controversy continued. I thought I was buried, but I was working there for 30 days, and I still heard that there were uh, people in the company that didn't think I filled out the, uh, the requirements that were needed by the union or the job. I had no previous history of working for GM. And um, finally, one of the high seniority guys in the union that worked with me a little bit was called on the phone by the union, and they asked him if I should stay. And he turned around, he looked at me, and he said, we like him. And that was the end of it. I earned $1.5 million in 30 years at GM, and I enjoyed every minute of it. That's my story, Richard. If the voters approve the new legislation, the city panel would promote, quote, harmonious, peaceful, mutually respectful, and beneficial coexistence between Earthlings and aliens. 
voters should support it or at least consider it because they've been the victims of a government hoax for the last 60 years which has denied the existence of extraterrestrial intelligent visitors to our planet even though there are many government whistleblowers that are prepared to testify that in fact this has been a cover-up we have been visited there are reasons that the public should know about this well, we just finished with our municipal elections up here in Canada, and uh, there's more coming uh, down in the United States November the 2nd in just a couple of days. And along with uh, elections for, for local councils and mayors and so forth, they have interesting initiatives down there as well. Of course, we're all familiar with the, uh, the proposition to, uh, to legalize marijuana. But there's another equally fascinating, perhaps even more fascinating, initiative uh, that's taking place in the city of Denver. It's called Initiative 300. And the man who's spearheading this is Jeff Peckman. He's an American UFO disclosure activist, as well as a political candidate for the Natural Law Party. Peckman is a, an advocate for the disclosure of UFO and extraterrestrial phenomena who gained media attention back in 2008 when he publicly displayed a video of a purported extraterrestrial in Denver, Colorado. Jeff Peckman joins us on the line from Denver as they're preparing to, uh, to vote in the city of Denver on Initiative 300. And he'll tell us what that's all about. And Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics Canada is with us as well. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hi, Richard. Uh, Jeff, first to you. Uh, we've uh, had you on uh, fairly recently discussing Initiative 300, but for those that missed it, what is this initiative? This is a proposed ordinance that was put on the ballot by petition. Over 10,000 people signed the petition, and it will create a seven-member volunteer commission that will essentially serve as a task force to collect credible evidence about visitations by extraterrestrial intelligent beings and to share that evidence on the city government website so that the people have immediate access to that. Why is, uh, let me ask Victor, when we, when we first learned about uh, this initiative, yeah. uh, I mean, this sent really shockwaves through the UFO disclosure uh, community. Why is Jeff's initiative so important? Well, I think, first of all, if you take a look at the entire initiative, constitutionally, um, Richard, I think it's a, it's a precedent setter because um, if this does pass, and we're really hoping that this does go forward in a very positive way, constitutionally, this will be the very first time any municipal uh, or even government entity within the United States has given any credence to uh, the public acceptance through an, an electoral vote of an extraterrestrial type of task force, as Jeff just said. And if this uh, task force is established in the way that it is, it will set a major precedence, not only in the United States, but my estimation is globally. And uh, Jeff and all his, uh, his supporters, and uh, I count myself as one of them, will be ex you know, ex exhilarated by the fact that this kind of commission will be in place within the Constitution of the United States as allowed for by the electoral process uh, in, the, uh, in the city of Denver. So that in itself, uh, the precedent-setting nature of this, is in my uh, estimation a milestone in disclosure. Uh, Jeff, uh, explain how one gets an initiative on the ballot, because this isn't something we do a lot up here in Canada. So explain the process. Well, this is derived, I believe, from the First Amendment of our Constitution that guarantees the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And throughout many states, but not all states, and throughout 10,000 cities and counties, but not all counties and cities, there are initiative rights. 
initiative and referendum. Referendum typically means the legislators put an initiative, uh, something on the ballot, and then the people vote on that. Whereas an initiative is more where the people themselves, the citizens, place an ordinance or a statute or a constitutional amendment for the state on the ballot, and then the voters vote on that. So it, the procedures are varied throughout the country, and if a person wanted to start this process, they would just have to go to their elections office and say, do we have the right of initiative in this town or in this state, and begin from there. And then uh, I'm gathering you have to gather uh, a certain number of signatures to get it on the ballot, is that right? That's right. There's usually some formula that prescribes how many signatures that you have to collect of registered voters on a petition, and even the way the petitions are formed and how those signatures are collected, that's very different from place to place. But once you get enough ballot signatures that's certified, then typically it would be placed on a ballot or it might go through some intermediate procedure, intermediate procedure, where the, the legislators themselves might have a chance to enact it without it going to the voters. If they don't enact it, then it would go to the voters. So it's, it's complicated, but it's a very basic grassroots function of, of democracy in the United States. And in fact, that's how women in the United States got the right to vote in Oregon and Arizona before they were allowed to vote in presidential elections. So it's been a core part of our democracy and in many instances, the only way to get certain things done. Let me ask you, Jeff, um, you, you said uh, you, in response to Richard's question, you indicated that you, you got signatures. Now, my estimation is, or my information is, that you got uh, possibly uh, 10,000 to begin over with? Ten, over 10,000 people signed the petition, and then the, edu the uh, elections office goes through every signature to make sure that the information matches sufficiently with what's in the voter registration records. And so we ended up with about 4,000 valid signatures because very often people just forget where they were living when they registered to vote initially. And if that doesn't match us, they reject the signature. I see. So if these, let's say ostensibly, if these four or 5,000 people actually go out to vote because they put their name on the, uh, on the petition list, uh, you've got yourself in the bank probably 4,000 votes almost automatically, or am I overestimating that? Well, I think you're right, Victor, and uh, so that is a, a nice chunk. We expect that it might take 80 to 100,000 votes to get this to pass, because in this general election, there's many more people voting than in other citywide elections. I understand. What kind of reaction were you getting as you're collecting these signatures? You're going door to door. I mean, the 4,000 uh, signatures that you, you, you received, obviously, would indicate that they were those 4,000 people were, were receptive to the idea. But what other kinds of re reactions were you getting? Well, certainly there will be people that will just raise their eyebrows and roll their eyes and shake their head and say, are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> and so you have to deal with that because... Everybody in this country, at least, and elsewhere, have been conditioned for decades to think that, you know, an attempt has been made to get them to think that this is not a reality, that it's all just science fiction and fringe groups and UFO enthusiasts that are interested in this topic. But that was a really a minority. The majority were happy to sign it, and among those were people who could not sign it quickly enough. They knew that this is long overdue. And very often they would start sharing stories with us 
that they had not told anyone else about their own UFO sightings, their information that they'd gained about extraterrestrial visitors, people that they knew were in Roswell and saw the, the alien bodies and just know, knew the whole story. That was really the exciting part. And just standing on the street anywhere in this country, you could probably hold up a sign that says, tell me your UFO ET story, and people would come up to you all day long just from your own community. So that was very exciting, and we were very encouraged by that. The fact that this is now uh, on the ballot and will be voted upon uh, by the citizens of Denver November 2nd, has this started any political discourse? Has it become uh, a campaign issue among any of the, the, the councilors or the, in the race for mayor? There is no race for mayor going on right now in Denver. There is a race for governor, and the mayor of Denver is in a very tight race. Uh, for that office. So they're not really venturing into this topic. The Democratic Party in Denver has been on a campaign to encourage everybody to vote no on all initiatives, all numbered initiatives, and there's seven of them. But they've selected ours out as being neutral. So they're voting no on every other numbered initiative that was put on the ballot by citizens, but they're not, not taking any position on this, on Initiative 300. Unfortunately, they're not explaining that in their big campaign. They're just saying vote no on numbers. So a lot of people will see, oh, Initiative 300 is a number. I guess the Democrats want me to vote no, when that's not the case. They're, they're being a little bit sloppy with it. So that's working against us, I think. But it is good news that they're, they're having a neutral position. And the discourse, there really isn't that much discourse because Nobody wants, they, they know that this is a very popular topic, but they don't want to take a position that could put them at risk. They have their talking points very well scripted from months ago, and they're not just not, the candidates themselves are not venturing into this. Uh, Victor, uh, what is this, I'm hearing rumblings that a, a, a similar uh, proposition or initiative could soon be on the ballot in New York City? Yeah, I understand through uh, some of the information that Jeff has sent me, and probably he could explain it a little bit more, that uh, New York City under, was it Michael Luckman, uh, Jeff, who's attempting to do something very similar in the in the city of New York at some point during their municipal campaign. Uh, you want to run some of that information by us? Yes, Michael's very interested in starting uh, the same kind of ballot initiative in New York City. The process is different. There you can just print out a petition from the Internet, fill it out, and mail it in or, or sign it with somebody on the street. And uh, he needs to have the blessing of the mayor of New York, Mayor Bloomberg. And he said that that is a complication that, to me, that does not exist in Denver. But he said he knows of some city council members in New York City that are already favorable to the idea. So he, he's in a very preliminary stage of exploring what to do. But I think this could go over very well in New York City, given the recent sightings, even no matter what it turned out to be, whether it was balloons or some other craft that they're really not discussing. But there's, there's a knowledge and awareness about this. And he's also trying to set up, uh, he's interested in doing a, a UFO-themed concert or festival, possibly in Denver, if Initiative 300 passes, or somewhere in New York. Uh, I suppose it could be in Canada, for that matter, where musicians, a lot of these very top musicians, have a strong interest in this topic. And uh, he's been working on this for a while, so you could see some news about that soon. 
Victor Vigiani is uh, with ExoPolitics Canada, the media director. He joins me regularly here on, here on the uh, Conspiracy Show. And Jeff Peckman is a UFO disclosure advocate in Denver who is spearheading Initiative 300, which, if passed November 2nd, in just a couple days' time, uh, would uh, see the formation of a UFO commission uh, as, as part of uh, Denver, uh, as part of the municipal government. And, uh, well, Jeff, keep us posted. Uh, we'll, um, we'll watch this one carefully, and uh, the best of luck to you. And, and if this passes, this could be, uh, you know, a, a monumental occasion in, in uh, the UFO disclosure movement. It certainly will be, and there's a lot of up, uh, upwelling of support from the college students. One campus, I heard that this is all they want to talk about. How are you going to vote on Initiative 300? So that's happening underground, and people can go read our page newsletter, our newspaper about the campaign, extracampaign.org, voter education. Nothing has ever been created like this in any campaign, and people are, even the Denver League of Women Voters, two volunteers called it a collector's item. So go on that website, read that, you'll see what this is all about. Terrific. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Victor. You're most welcome, Richard. Thank you, Richard and Victor. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed our Halloween special. Back next week, we'll uh, speak with Ali Siadatan, who is the uh, filmmaker responsible for a very interesting documentary called UFOs, Angels, and Gods, in which he examines the alien agenda and uh, reveals what he thinks is really behind the entire UFO ET phenomenon. That's Ali Siadatan, filmmaker, producer of UFOs, gods and angels. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I say in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.